Good morning once again. Um, if you missed yesterday, we celebrated a very special woman. Um, Sandra Clark is retiring after 37 years, and we got to celebrate with her. Um, her last day is going to be this Wednesday, and so um, I want to give you all permission on Thursday morning, call her. <laughs> Numbers 555-555-555. Make sure she's doing okay. Hey, Sandra, thank you. We love you, and we're so thankful for you. Um, So um, one of the favorite things that my kids say to me is, that's not fair. Dad, he got to do this and I didn't. That's not fair. Mom, she got to go and I didn't and that's not fair. You got to go to the game and I didn't and that's not fair. And as adults, we have learned to listen to their sweet, adorable voices and respond with one simple phrase. Life's not fair fair. And we've heard it, and the the funny thing is that we know life is not fair, but we have some adult versions of those statements. But she or he was so young, and I don't know how that could happen to them. Or they were such a good person, and they deserved it, or they didn't deserve it. And so we, we listen to our kids say, well, that's not fair, but in all honesty, we have our own version of the statement. Because while we understand that life is not fair, deep down in our soul, in our heart, we hope that in some ways it is. We, we like to believe in at least the idea of karma. And karma says that there are consequences for your actions. And that's true to a certain extent. There are consequences to your actions. But karma takes that a little further and says, well, because you did something good or bad, something good or bad accordingly is going to happen as a result from it. That sometime in the future, something is going to come along and it's going to happen as a result Not of those direct actions, but because of the good karma that's upon you. So karma says that something bad has happened. Someone has sinned. Someone has done something wrong. Therefore, they probably deserved it. But Jesus says it does not matter who has sinned. The way of God is grace. And the work of God is is mercy. But we like to believe that somewhere deep down in the way the world is structured, the way the world works, that there are these cause and effect sowing and reaping relationships. And really it's the question that begins John chapter 9 for these disciples. As they're walking out of the temple with Jesus, they see a man who's born blind, and they ask him, Jesus, who sinned? What's the cause 
of his blindness? Who's to blame for his blindness? Why is he this way? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Who sinned that he would be born blind? Who's to blame? Whose fault is it? What is the result of this? And it's an age-old question that we've all dealt with and that we've all struggled to answer. And it's, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And before we get to the healing of a blind man, I want to deal with that question and the context of the question. Um, As we've been saying, John, through these signs, is pointing to signs that reveal and show Jesus as the Messiah. And this sign here, healing of a blind man, a miracle, but really more a sign, is pointing to Jesus, the healer, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Savior. And so they ask him this question, who is born blind? But this question has a context. See, this question begins chapter 9 for us. And most of the time, the chapters and the verses and the subheadings are really, really helpful. But one of the things those headings and chapters and verses do is they shrink the story. They shrink the story to make you think that the story can stand on its own. But the story is really part of a larger story that's being told and a bigger context that this story is told in the midst of. You see, chapter 7 began a new section where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate the time in the desert where God provided for his people and they put up these temporary shelters, these temporary dwelling places, and that's what tabernacle means. Tabernacle simply means a dwelling place. He puts up, they put up these tabernacles, these dwelling places that God uses to provide for them while they're in the desert, and that is what this Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating. It's called, in the Hebrew world, Sukkoth. And it's one of the three um, pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish people. There's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There's Passover. And then there is Sukkot. And on these three festivals, these week-long festivals, people travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, this feast. And so Jesus finds himself in the temple courts teaching daily in the middle of this feast, in the middle of this festival with all of these people gathered around. There were some things that were very unique about this particular festival. You see, part of this festival was what was called the water libation ceremony. And so each day... They would walk down south of the temple to a pool called Siloam. And they would draw water from the pool of Siloam, and they would take it back to the temple. And every single day for seven consecutive days, the priest would pour a jug of water into a bowl that was over the altar, and the altar would be covered with water. Every single 
day of the festival. And a part of that ceremony, every night, these lamps would be lit. These lamps are not your typical lamps, though. They were located in the temple courts, in the court of the women, which was the most populated and first elevated level of the temple. And these four lampstands were 75 feet tall. And at the top of these 75 foot tall lampstands were four golden bowls that would hold about 30 gallons of oil. And inside of those large, basically golden bowls full of oil, they would take the priest's used undergarments and use them to light the lamps. It's where we get the phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. I totally made that up. Don't. Hey, do you know what my preacher told me? And they would light these lamps, basically what amounted to 16 massive flaming torches that would illuminate the temple, but also provide enough light to light up the entire city of Jerusalem. It was almost as if it was a city on a hill that could be seen by everyone. And so this is the setting of this story. This is where the scene unfolds as Jesus and his disciples are in the temple courts and they're teaching and there are these lamps and there are these ceremonies and there are so many people gathered around listening to Jesus teaching. And there the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Right there in the temple courts where the offering is taken, right where these lamps are placed, and they put her in front of Jesus, and they say, the, the law of Moses commands us to stand stone such a woman. What do you say? And it's almost as if Jesus completely ignores their accusations, and he bends down on the ground, and he starts to ride in the sand, and then he stands up, and he looks at the accusers, and he says to them, the one of you that is without sin, you throw the first stone. And John tells us that one by one, the accusers walked away, starting with the oldest first. And Jesus asked the woman, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, well, no one, sir. And Jesus responds to her. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now you go and leave your life of sin. Go and find new life. This woman who was as good as dead, who was a perfect illustration for the Pharisees of what should happen to anyone who sins. And yet Jesus does not allow them to stone her. And it's in this very setting, with the festival of tabernacles, 
with these massive lights that would light up the city of Jerusalem that Jesus says, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And from there, the conversation becomes confrontational. From there, it goes on and Jesus tells these Pharisees that if you know me and you obey my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. To which the Pharisees respond, well, we are free people. We're Abraham's disciples. We're his ancestors. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you set us free? And Jesus, over the the conversation, basically says, your only freedom, the only freedom you have is to hate your enemies and conspire to kill them in the name of your religion and your nationality. And that comes from your father, the devil. And he continues to remind them who their father is because of the spirit they have. And then the chapter ends like this in verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Chapter 8 begins with an attempted stoning by the Pharisees. Trying to stone a woman who is caught in adultery. And chapter 8 ends with the Pharisees trying to stone Jesus. And then chapter 9 begins with this question. Rabbi, who sinned? Is it this man or is it his parents that he was born blind? Tell us. You see, we have, for the third time, in this short, basically 60 verses, the third attempted stoning. This one more metaphorical, but it still comes from the same spirit. The spirit of blame and accusation. Jesus, tell us whose fault this is. Jesus, tell us who's to blame. Who is it that we should throw the stones at? Because it's these three stories that are full of the satanic influence of blame and accusation. 
the desire, the need to blame someone for what has happened. But there is a reason for the blame. There is a reason. Because we like to think that the world is less chaotic and more organized and has more reason. And so if something bad has happened to someone, then there must be a reason that it has happened. If something bad has happened, surely they have done something in their past to deserve it. Rabbi, who is to blame? Rabbi, whose fault is this? You see, we want to create a system to explain it. We want to create a system to explain how something possibly could have happened in this way to a person if they were really good. Because deep down inside, we have this belief that if you'll follow Jesus and if you'll submit to him, then most things in your life are going to go really well. And we don't admit that. But we like to think that's how the world is ordered. Because, because if something bad could happen to someone who is undeserving of it, then that means something bad could happen to me, and I cannot deal with it. And I can't figure out a way to explain why it would. And Jesus emphatically denies and resists the inclination that this is how the world is ordered. He says, no, the world we live in is far darker and stranger than that, and the light of God is more beautiful and powerful, and the grace of God shines more brightly. The world does not work the way that you want it to and the way you think it's ordered. And so, yes, bad things will happen to people that we look at and we say they don't deserve it. And vice versa, good things will happen to people we look at and say, well, they don't deserve it. So enter the story of a man named Job. Job, the book begins with this statement by God that Job is a righteous man. And if anyone could ever testify to the fact that Job is a righteous man, it is God. And in fact, he says it emphatically, that Job is one of the most righteous men of any generation. But Satan comes on the scene with accusation. And he tells God, well, the only reason that Job is righteous is because you have blessed him and been good to him. And then... In an instant, Job loses everything. His wealth, his family, and his health. It is all taken from him. And then Satan exits the story. And as Satan exits the story, Job has three friends, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that enter the story. 
and it seems that Satan has left. And so his friends come on the scene, and they sit down, and pretty soon... These men who have come to comfort Job are left to try to explain to Job what has happened. And Job, you need to understand that nothing like this could possibly happen if you were really good as you say you are. If you were truly righteous, this does not happen. And they try to explain to Job, but really they're not trying to explain just simply to Job why this bad thing has happened to Job. They are trying to explain it to themselves. We we need a reason that this has happened. We, We need a way to justify that we're going to be okay if we continue to be good. You see, Job even though Satan exits the story. He doesn't really leave. But now, the spirit of blame and accusation is channeled through his three friends, saying, Job, you must have done something to deserve this. Why don't you curse God and die? And undoubtedly, they quote Proverbs. Proverbs that basically say if you will live righteously and you will fear God, then you are going to be happy, prosperous, and blessed. Because in essence, that's what Proverbs says. If you will fear God, live righteously, then you will be happy, prosperous, and blessed. And that is true. To a large extent, that is true. And most of you can testify to that. If you will fear God and you will live righteously, then you're going to be happy, prosperous. Your life is going to be better than it was. And you can shake your head and you can say, yes, I believe that. And that is true. Until it's not. In large part, it is true. Until it's not. You see, Job is an attempt to answer the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people through the lens of accusation and blame? Job, you must have done something to deserve this. And you have the book of Job, and you have the book of Proverbs. And the two must be held together and balanced. There is a tension between the two books. Because we want to explain why things happen the way they do. Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man? Or was it his parents? But they are asking the wrong question. The question they are asking is, who is to blame? Whose fault is it? What is the cause of this? But who is to blame is not the proper question. It is, how can we help? How can we bring a spirit of mercy and grace? Because that is the spirit of a new day. 
not who is to blame, but how can we help? How can we enter into the story and bring change and life? That is the spirit of Jesus. And so Jesus responds, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus, as the word of God, brings an entirely new perspective on the works of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up and he does not assign blame and he does not bring accusation and he does not cast stones. He simply invites those who are apart from God to walk into the kingdom of God. It is the spirit of a new day. And the thing he keeps telling the Pharisees over and over and over, you belong to your father, the devil. You belong to your father, Satan. Hasatan is the Hebrew word. It means the accuser. The reason you belong to him is because you have that spirit within you. The spirit of blame and the spirit of accusation. But I have come so that you can have new life, that you can have a new spirit that lives within you, a Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not an accuser. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. And the question of the accuser is who do we blame? And the question of the Holy Spirit, the advocate, is how can I help? How can I extend grace and mercy How can I help? How can I reach into someone's life and bring them up? And that is what I love about this church more than anything else. Is this has always been a church where people extend grace and mercy. Where we reach into people's lives who are hurting, who are broken, and we lift them up. And we ask the question, how can I help? And sometimes as we help, we get hurt in the process. Because when you enter into the brokenness of people, you will sometimes be hurt by it. But Jesus does not withdraw. He does not stand back. He does not cast stones. He simply invites these people to find new life. And the people he is confronting is not the woman caught in adultery. It's the men who are accusing her of it. The blame and the accusation, Jesus redirects. Because the Pharisees had a a vision problem. Their, Their vision worked one direction. They could see other people. They could see what other people were doing wrong. But they couldn't see themselves. 
And it was always easier to cast stones at others. So with the crucifixion, night has come. Darkness has won. But on the third day, the sun rises again. And a new day is born. And so Jesus, once again, just like in chapter 8, kneels down on the ground and he gathers some dirt into his hands. And he spits in the dirt and he makes it into some mud and he stands up and he wipes it all over the man's eyes. Which is kind of a funny story. The man can already not see. And yet he covers the eyes of a blind man. And he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. By the way, where was the water libation? Where did the water come from for the ceremony? Siloam. He tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. He comes back with new eyes. He comes back. He he makes his way through this crowded city at a time when this pilgrimage festival is happening and there's all of these people. He's feeling his way through the city, down the streets, and he finds this pool and he jumps in and he begins to wash in this pool and now he can see. And John gives us this really important sign, this really important key to understanding what's happening. He says this word Siloam means sent. When you go and wash in the pool of the sent one, it's baptism, that you come back and you see things differently. When you go and wash in the pool, it's not just that you are seen differently. It's that from now on, you see the world differently than you once did. There there is a new spirit that lives inside of you. And it's not the spirit of blame and accusation, the one of the accuser. It's this Holy Spirit that lives in you. It's the advocate who asks the question, how can I help? How can I enter into this world and bring the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves? How can I enter into this world and bring people to new life? And Jesus begins this argument because what follows is now an interrogation. As they're trying to find out Who is responsible? And and don't miss this. Jesus in chapter 8, with these massive lights that light up the city, standing there says, I am the light of the world. And when they try to stone him, the light leaves the temple, and the light will not return to the temple until it is time for the light to go out when Jesus is crucified and dies. The light leaves the temple. And he goes and illuminates a new temple. A living, breathing person. 
and he says, I am going to send my spirit to live within you. See, what was the temple? The temple was a tabernacle. It was a dwelling place. It was the place where God was. And the light sent from God leaves the tabernacle and goes and illuminates a brand new one. A person. And he gives that person his light to live inside of him. That now this person, this new tabernacle, could be illuminated with the light of the world. And wherever that tabernacle went, God's perfection would be seen. Not because of the perfection of us, but because of the perfection of him who lives within us that is perfecting us daily. What a beautiful story. I think John might have had a little help piecing all this together. Because it gives us hope that just because the way the world, we assume the way the world works is not the way that it works, that God's grace and that God's mercy is more powerful and far more beautiful than anything we could ever assume about how things are supposed to be. See, the Pharisees, they bring accusation and blame and they interrogate this man. What did he do? How did he do it? Who was this man? Where is he now? Are you really the man? The Pharisees stone, banish, and blame. And as they stone, banish, and blame, they continually try to put this man in a place where they're going to put his parents outside of the temple, where they want to threaten to put him outside of the temple. And they have question after question after question, and they ask him all these questions, and he responds, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is I was blind, and now I see. I, I don't know where he is. I don't know who he is. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. And Jesus comes back to these Pharisees. As they have followed, as they've been trying to investigate, they've been trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world. So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind Two, and Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt 
remains. He speaks to these Pharisees who are looking to stone, banish, and blame. These people who think they are doing the work of God by pointing out everyone else's sin. And he says the work of God. Those who are blind. Those who are blind stone, banish, and blame. But the people of God love, heal, and forgive. And really just a question for you as we end this morning. What spirit lives within you? What what is the spirit that most constantly comes out? Is it the spirit of blame and accusation? Or is it the spirit of the advocate to love heal and forgive because the accuser will blame the sufferer for their suffering but the advocate will walk into the setting and ask the question how can I help what is the spirit that lives within you because that baptism, that new identity you have did not just change the way that God sees you. It changes the way that you see the world because the filth that covered your eyes has now been washed away and you can see through new eyes. Father, today, Help us. Help us to see this world and live in this world with the spirit of the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Help him to fill our life and help us to bring love and healing, compassion, grace, mercy into this world. And Father, forgive us when we find ourselves casting stones Forgive us when we find ourselves bringing accusation. Forgive us when we find ourselves blaming. And Father, call us back. Invite us to life. Because one is so destructive and it wreaks havoc on our life and it helps us, um, it keeps us from seeing ourselves as we are. But then there's this other spirit, Father, that lets us see ourselves as sinners who are saved by grace who want to extend that grace and mercy in a world that needs it so badly. And so, Father, we pray that you would invade our life with your spirit. Live in us. Light up this world. Illuminate these tabernacles that are here as we go out into this world, that we could be the light of the world. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have never washed in the pool of the sent one, We simply offer you that invitation this morning. Come, have your sins washed away. But understand this, that it's not just about how you are seen. It is about how you will will see from this day forward. If we could simply pray for you, we're going to have shepherds and staff around this auditorium. We would love to pray for you wherever you are, whatever your need. So come while we stand and sing.